Hello, welcome once again to Cabin Devils. My name is David. You're listening to part two of Dr. John Norris's three-part series concerning the heart. You know, when someone talks about the heart and you try to search the scriptures for relevant verses, one that you will not miss is one that talks about the heart being wicked above all things. Who can understand it? And the other is a proverb that says that guard your heart for out of it flows issues of life. And when you think about a developed heart, which is a title for today's episode, you'll understand that if this particular heart that we're talking about is wicked, cannot be replaced and cannot be mended, then we have to understand that this process can only be accomplished by the Lord. Only God can replace this heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Once again, welcome to part two. I don't know if you know John Bloom, assuming the United States is one country. But he says some interesting things here in his article, do not follow your heart, do not follow your heart. He says, follow your heart is a creed embraced by billions of people. It's a statement of faith in one of the great pop culture myths of the Western world, a gospel proclaimed in many of our stories, movies, and songs. Essentially, it's a belief that your heart is a compass inside of you that will direct you to your own true north if you just have the courage to follow it. It says that your heart is a true guide that will lead you to true happiness if you just have the courage to listen to it. The creed says that you are lost and your heart will save you. (laughs) This creed can sound so simple and beautiful and liberating. For the lost people, it's a tempting gospel to believe but i want also to believe that some christians have desired to follow their hearts and what do you think about this brand new not brand new i think it's been existing for a long time but what do you think about this belief of follow your heart i'm sure you've heard of it in songs and movies but dr norris what's your I, I i know what your view is of course it's the opposite but how have you been able to um <laughs> advise people who have ended up following their hearts in this sense Yes, uh, David, I thank you for the question. And I and I do. Uh, I, I agree with the concept of not following your heart. If your heart is not committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, if your if your heart is you just following your flesh, then obviously following your heart is more of an emotional thing that drags you all around to do things and want to do things that God does not want you to do. And so that's what we're going to actually be talking about today in, in, this, in this session where we talk about the heart developed is, is actually that if you start with an unregenerate heart, a heart before Jesus, that heart can't be trusted. And in fact, that's the heart that is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can understand it. That's the heart that Jeremiah talked about in chapter 17, verse 9. And so I would agree uh, with the concept that if you're trying to follow your heart, you better make sure that it's a regenerate heart that's actually following Jesus. Because then if you're following your heart, you're following Jesus. Interesting. Um, if your heart is regenerated, if your heart is regenerated. Now, I found this article when I was looking up um, the verse uh, that talks about how deceitful our heart is above all things. The hearts are deceitful above all things. And the question was, who can understand it? And 
when I think about that verse, honestly, my first reaction is if it is so wicked, I want to believe that this is a heart that needs to be removed, literally, not 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 resuscitated, because <laughs> resuscitation is the same heart being beating again. And yet we are talking about developing, developing a heart. Is this a new heart we are talking about? Are we repairing the old one? What, uh, what, what are we expecting today, Dr. John, when it comes to our topic for tonight? That's really the question I'm asking. Yes. When we start and we talk about developing the heart, there's no way that we can develop a deceitful, wicked, unregenerate heart. So in other words, the heart before Jesus can't be rehabilitated. There's no way that we can work ourselves to be, be better. But as uh, Ezekiel, the prophet, uh, wrote in, in 36.26, Ezekiel 36.26, he talks about this, this new plan or a new covenant that God has with his people where he will remove their hearts of stone and implant in them a heart of flesh that God himself can motivate and guide and direct. And that's the heart that we are to follow once God is there with us. And so that's the key. That's the heart that we're talking about developing is the new, uh, renewed, awakened spiritual heart, the one that has been saved and is now on the process of sanctification, if you want to use biblical or, or theological terms, that's the heart that we want to develop. Well, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward. That's the heart we want to develop. I hope that uh, we will also tackle some of the issues that come with this heart, brand new heart that eventually tends to, I want to use the word, degenerate degenerate what causes it to degenerate of course the organ that we have um i don't have to be a cardiologist to know that one day it will fail me the older that i get it will fail me and i want to think of our spiritual hearts in this example and uh, maybe ask the question what is it that is going to cause me to have a heart that is degenerating maybe faster than it should spiritually, if I can use the word spiritually. Um, and I think those are some of the things you said we're going to look at. What are some of the practices uh, that are going to help us the same way one would jog every day to keep their heart fit? What are some of the practices that we can have to protect our heart, to keep it in shape? I'm honestly looking forward. I don't even think you'll have anything to share on Friday once we are done with today. But... <laughs> <laughs> Again, oh, no, we'll have, um, we'll have uh, quite a bit to share then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Dr. John, why don't you uh, just go ahead and uh, start your your presentation, if I can put it that way. And then we I hope that we'll have at least maybe 10 minutes uh, towards the end where we can have uh, questions. But once again, Dr. John, you are welcome to Cabin Devils. Glad to have Absolutely. you. Thank you, David, and thank you to the rest of the participants. I just want to let you guys know, uh, since I spoke uh, with you and, and fielded some of your questions on Monday, I've been praying for the group because uh, I know some of the things that I share might be new concepts or, like David mentioned, uh, that the whole idea that we can't trust these hearts that we have, uh, that in some way they're going to uh, let us down. And I think that uh, hopefully after we discuss uh, things today and then get into Friday's discussion, you'll see uh, that the heart really is the issue 
that that God wants to make the main issue in our lives. And so that's really the key. And you remember, of course, as David said, the starting point for every human being is the desperately wicked heart. That's Jeremiah 17, 9, and we talked about it. Or in Proverbs 21, uh, it, it certainly talks about how uh, the heart uh, can be deceitful and that in every man's mind, he thinks that he's right, but that the Lord weighs the heart. And this is one of those things when we sit there and think about this, that there is a need for a brand new heart. And I, and I appreciate David bringing up that point so that I could talk about the Ezekiel 36, 26 new heart that was prophesied years and years before Jesus came. Now, when Jesus sat with his disciples at the Last Supper, he alluded to the way that the heart becomes new. And in that Last Supper, he, he talked about uh, the, the Holy Spirit. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. And then he says, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And that's John 14, 17, where Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit will himself come into our beings. And so this is the whole question is, what happens at that moment in which the Holy Spirit enters our beings, enters our bodies, and then, as, as it were, God removes our stony old heart and puts in a brand new heart of, uh, of his, really. And that's a turning point in life. And I would say the key word for that turning point where the awakening occurs and someone becomes born again, the key uh, term there is repentance. So we've lived our life and we've, we've gone a direction that was our own and we thought we were right, but the Lord weighs our hearts and finds us to be uh, wrong, or I use the term unregenerate, sinful is another way to think of that. And then repentance is necessary. Now, I find it interesting that when John the Baptist came and then when Jesus came after him, if you look at their words to people, the very first word that both of them spoke when they were here on the earth in a ministry format, was the word repent, turn around, turn away. And repentance is, in fact, an action of the heart. What it involves is a conviction of sin, regret or remorse for that sin, and then a decision of the will to turn away from that direction, the direction of sin, and to go in God's way. And so those, those things are key. And we get from this, I, I think David probably says it the best in the Psalm 51, uh, 17, where he's talking about himself actually needing a new or regenerate heart after his, his uh, sinful um, uh, incident with Bathsheba. And, and it says there in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And of course, in that same psalm, David asks God to create in him a clean heart. And so this is one of the ideas, is that the heart 
doesn't automatically stay nice and clean and pristine. Once we have this regenerate or born again experience, we, we constantly have a struggle to then develop the heart. And that's what we're talking about today. So once the turning point has occurred and we've got this heart now that can be used by God for his purposes, now we have to go from the turning point to what I would call a training point. And the training point is, is, is this idea today of how do you develop the heart? And I would say there, there are three main ways, kind of general categories that we have to develop the heart. Number one is we recognize that the heart is the center of our body. And so we have to uh, take care of our heart physically. The second thing is that we realize that the heart is, is kind of the center of our spiritual nature. And so the heart is really the core of our spirit nature, and that's what drives decision. And we talked about it the other day, too, that when a body and a spirit are together, that's called the soul. So really, the center of our soul is also the heart because it's the center of our body and the center of our spirit. And since we're embodied spirits, since we're whole people, the heart is also correctly thought of as really the center of our soul. So let's step back for a second and think about the body. And what I like to think of in the first sense is what I call temple maintenance. So your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and when we think about this and how do you care for the heart, well, there are different ways that cardiologists tell people to care for the heart, eating healthy foods, the right portions, exercising, uh, you know, 30 to 45 minutes a day, getting the right sleep, uh, doing a good, you know, work using your mind and all those other sorts of things, because that helps to create an environment in which the Holy Spirit indwells you and then can motivate you and guide you and direct you. The scripture passage that I love to, to uh, uh, reference in terms of your body and taking care of your body comes from 1 Corinthians 6. And Paul says this, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. And here's the key two verses. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so the notion that I have, and when I tell people and teach people about heart-healthy habits, I start with the body because that's the easiest thing that people can see. And I say, you need to focus on 
these these habits of, of eating and exercise and sleep and these other things. But I think there's a there's a purpose of our bodies too to realize that our bodies are 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 essentially the housing of the Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus talked about at the Last Supper in John 14. He says, this spirit, the spirit of God, think of it this way, the DNA of God will be in you and in your body. So that's what I think of first, the body. The second, and I would say, is is the spirit. And and Paul writes a shorter uh, passage here in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. He says, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And what Paul is teaching Timothy here is that taking care of your body is important. That's an important aspect of the Christian life and actually uh, developing the heart. But he also wants Timothy to focus on the spiritual side of himself. And so there's spiritual disciplines, and I'm sure you've you've heard uh, quite a bit about spiritual disciplines. To me, thinking about spiritual disciplines, I think of them as what I would call disciplines of the heart. They're disciplines to help you develop your heart. And some of those disciplines are inward, like prayer and fasting and scripture study and quiet time meditation, uh, just having a conversation with the Lord. Some of these disciplines are outward, uh, like our worship and uh, solitude and service and things that we do that are outside. And so we're not going to talk as much about those since the heart is an inward thing. So we'll talk a little bit about the disciplines. So when I mentioned prayer, and I told you uh, Monday that one of my favorite passages is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very explicit. Uh, he says in Matthew 6, 5 through 8, he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So one of the disciplines of the heart, and probably one of the central ones, is prayer. And that's why when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about prayer, he puts it right up front. After he gives us the model prayer, what we call the, the, the uh, Lord's Prayer, which is really the apostles or the disciples' prayer, he talks about fasting. And that's a little bit further down in Matthew 6, 16 through 18. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so you can see a theme between fasting and prayer that these are internal things. They're means to develop your heart alone with God away from the crowd so that other people don't know. And in fact, you know, we don't have to tell 
other people or talk to other people much about what's going on behind those closed doors. And then thirdly, I would say, and I mentioned scripture study, and I've, I've quoted this for you on Monday, uh, in Hebrews 4, uh, 12, uh, the writer says, for the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It says it tests the attitudes and desires of the heart. So one of the key things there is that we have to study the scriptures to actually have our heart opened so that we can look at it and see where are the areas that need to be developed? Where are the areas that need to grow? And where are the areas that perhaps need to be cut away? And uh, at the end, I'll, I'll, I'll address one of David's questions a little bit, which is about the hardening of the heart, or, or what happens when a heart is, is born again and then regenerate, but then kind of backslides and starts getting hard again. And that's a very difficult situation. But let's talk still about the disciplines of the heart. So we talked about temple maintenance, we talked about some spiritual disciplines that help the heart grow. And then the third aspect that I mentioned in our outline is a training of the mind. We have to discipline our mind and train ourselves to think the thoughts that God wants us to think. Now, some people will say that we're thinking God's thoughts, okay, or we think like God. And I think that's a little, mis there's a misunderstanding there. We don't have the capacity to think like God. Uh, we have the capacity to think like human beings who are indwelt by God. And so what God wants us to do is to discipline our minds so that as we use our minds to make choices, rational choices, some based on what our heart is desiring to do, but others, frankly, which, which our heart might not want to desire to do, but God wants us to do. So we will make our choices then based on God's direction or his will. And so engaging the mind is another aspect that requires discipline. Uh, one of the verses that I love in, in regard to the mind and how the mind and heart interact is this. Romans 2, 14 and 15 says, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. And this is a complicated passage, in part because it talks about Gentiles and Jews, but also because it talks about the heart and the mind. And, and this term called the conscience is brought in there. The conscience is your consciousness or your awareness of what you think is right and wrong. Okay. And the conscience isn't the same as your heart. The conscience is a part of your mind that allows you to make rational decisions. And so this is one of the things that Paul, when he's arguing, and he basically says, these Gentiles who now have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God indwelling their heart, they act like they know the law because the DNA of God in a Spirit-filled person will fully um, enact the law or will act according to the law, just like a, a committed Jew who understands the law and is actually following the law. 
So the notion that this that our minds are are important and that our thoughts are important that they inform our heart also a little bit uh, uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians there's a longer passage here and I want you guys to to stick with me on this cuz I know it's getting a little more complicated here uh, Paul says this for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them in the same way no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And then he concludes with this important word. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. And so that's one of the keys, is that someone who has a heart that's fully committed to God also has the mind of Jesus Christ. Now, the difference is we don't have the full mind of Jesus. We're in process, as it were. And that's one of the key things. Uh, one of my favorite um, uh, verses in Scripture is Romans 12, 2, where Paul, writing to the Romans, says this, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when we focus our minds on Christ, when we pay attention to Jesus and our hearts are open to him, the Spirit instructs us and transforms our minds so that we begin to think in the manner that God wants us to think, which is the same way that the DNA of Jesus himself thought, the same way that the Holy Spirit thinks, and of course, the, the Father God. Uh, the last thing that I would say on this uh, is in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, where Paul says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so the notion is that our minds have to be connected uh, to our hearts. And by the way, that's there are nerves that connect our brain and our hearts physically. So our minds and our hearts have to be connected if we're going to be an integrated or a whole human being. Our minds inform uh, our actions, but our hearts are really kind of the center of the core of us. And that's what determines the will that we do. Uh, so then the question then becomes, and, and I'm going to kind of I got 10 minutes, so I'm going to try to conclude here so that we have our discussion time. Why is all of this training necessary? Why do we have to train our bodies? Why do we have to train our hearts? Why do we have to train our minds? What is it about this whole training process? Um, you know, why doesn't God just immediately 
do all of that? And I think that there's two answers to that that come immediately to my mind. Number one, it's during the training process that we come to know Jesus. And in that same vein, as we're coming to know Jesus, he comes to know us in the way that we allow ourselves to be known. So when we open ourselves to him and say, Lord, I want you to guide and direct me, and he says, do this, then we have a choice to make. Are we going to be obedient to him and follow him and do what it is that he said, or are we going to choose to go our own way and, and just pretend that we didn't hear what the Lord said to us in, in terms of the action that he wanted us to, to carry out? And that's one of the keys. It's through the um, working out, really, of this process that we come to relate to and know uh, the Lord in deeper and deeper ways. Now, there is a part of our being who resists this process, you know, the entire way, and that's our flesh. We have within us, uh, in the Greek, it's called the sarks, um, and, and some of the Bible translations, for example, the NIV translate that, the sinful nature. The sinful nature doesn't want our heart developed. The sinful nature doesn't want our mind transformed. The sinful nature of the flesh wants us to do what we would naturally want to do in our wicked, unregenerate states. So the flesh is still present in our bodies, in our beings, after the Holy Spirit has come in, saved us and sealed us and started this whole process of development. So that's one of the big struggles. When we look at someone who is acting um, not like a Christian, not like Jesus or a follower of his, uh, either they don't know him and never knew him, so they're in an unregenerate or a pre-Christian state, or the possibility is they're a believer, but they've just yielded so much to the flesh that they're walking in the flesh and they're not walking in the spirit. And so uh, you know about um, Galatians uh, um, 5, where it talks, uh, where Paul challenges us and he says, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So if the spirit in us is informing our, our decisions, is motivating us, then it gives us the right path so that we can, can walk and, and bring honor and glory to God and bring good to ourselves and others around us. Um, the other aspect of it, so number one is, is this needs to happen because it helps to, to us to relate to God. But then the other aspect of it is it helps us to relate to those around us through the trials of life. And so we're all, all going to get constant trials uh, one after another after another. I, everyone who's listening to this uh, presentation is going through a trial of some sort. It's a, it's a, a personal crisis or maybe a crisis of faith, uh, maybe a health crisis, um, or you know somebody who's, who's going through that. Uh, last night I was teaching the book of First Peter uh, in, in our Bible Institute, and, uh, and Peter is, is in Rome, and he's talking to Christians who are experiencing what he calls a fiery trial. And that fiery trial for them in the first century was Christians were being literally used as human torches 
if they did not renounce their faith in Jesus. And so trials are part of the whole process. And, and it points us to tomorrow when we talk about uh, a heart that's not just developed, but a heart that's devoted to God. And that's what we're going to end with tomorrow. But these tests are always going to be there. And I want to end with some scriptures that just remind us that this life here that we have is not primarily for our comfort or our enjoyment. The life that we have here is for God's glory and for us to image him. So the, the purpose of our lives is really that we can live a life that looks like God. That's the idea. And it's not us trying in our own flesh, in our own spirit, in our own strength to, to be good people. Okay, that will never work. It's, it's about us looking and see how far short of God we are, repenting, coming to him, his spirit comes into us, and then we yield ourselves to the guidance and the direction of the spirit so that when we're tested, we will bear up under the test and God will be glorified. In Jeremiah 17, 9, that's the verse that talks about the heart being wicked. The very next verse in Jeremiah 17, 10, he writes, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. In Proverbs 17, 3, it says this, the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And so one of the things that we can see is that testing and a testing of the heart is going to happen constantly throughout our lives. Okay, we, we will be tested through this earth and, and sometimes in very little ways, sometimes in big ways, but it's all going to be done. The testing is always going to be done with a purpose from God. We might not discern it at the time that we're going through the test. We might not know what the purpose of the test actually is, but God's purposes are known to him and may eventually become known to us when we see what the purpose of those trials and tests are. Galatians 6 verses 7 through 10 says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Peter, and I told you I taught First Peter, this is one of the key things that we're going to kind of emphasize tomorrow. He says this, in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, and do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed 
of your slander. And then the last verse that I'll end with and, and look forward to your questions is in James 4. He says this, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And I think as we, as we kind of close today, I think that's the, the proper attitude to approach all of this with. Um, David, you asked me what's the right attitude of our hearts for this growth process, and I think it's that. I think it's repentance. If we look at ourselves constantly as ones who are in total need of God, total need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, in total need of the power of the Holy Spirit, then we will be in a proper relationship with him. And so tomorrow, when we talk about what it means to invite him into our, to our hearts so that when we say we're following our heart, we're actually saying we're going to follow the Lord. And so our, if, if our hearts are fully committed to him, then those, those hearts are hearts that can be used to God's glory and to God's uh, uh, image and to show people that this is the way that we do actually image God is by having him indwelling in us and uh, representing himself to those around us. Let me um, ask the question here. It says, as a doctor and a Christian, do you think that the state of our hearts or Christianity can reflect outwardly with our bodies? If so, what can one do in case of that? Um, and I would say, um, yes, our hearts and our Christianity does reflect outwardly uh, with our bodies. And to me, I think that's one of the main reasons why it's important that we discipline not just our minds and, and the inner aspect of us, but we discipline our bodies for the purpose of godliness. So we realize, for example, when Jesus walked on the face of the earth, and of course he ate and and walked and did all the other sorts of things. I mean, it's it's kind of blows your mind a little bit to think about it. When he went to someone's house for dinner, he never took one bite more than he needed, uh, and he never took one bite less that that would offend the the hostess. Uh, or whoever was uh, making the uh, meal for him. And so that's one of the thoughts in my mind as I sit there and think, I'm supposed to image, I'm supposed to represent Jesus Christ, and, and he did everything completely perfectly. Uh, now, it doesn't paralyze me to think that when I go to someone's house for dinner or whatever, that, 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 you know, that I have to be a perfect person, uh, but it does inform me that I don't want to be you know, overeating. I don't want to be, um, you know, rude. I want to be attentive and sensitive to those people around me as part of that. And I hope that answers your question. Uh, Lucy asks a question here. It says, what does it say about my heart when circumstances bring me to wonder if God 
truly exists? And I think that's a very good question, Lucy, and I'm glad you asked it. Uh, I think that that thinking about God is, is a normal thing. And if you look at cultures through the millennia, people have thought about God and thought about God and wondered about God. Does God exist? And one of the things that we see is that, is that Judaism and Christianity has the advantage of, of reams of, of books and reams of words that describe God and his existence. And they don't go back just, you know, 100 years or 1,500 years or, or, or even 2,000 years when some of these Greek texts were, but they go all the way back in the Hebrew texts, all the way back to the time of Moses, and the history goes all the way back to Adam. So we do have a notion that at least if God exists, and let's say it that way, Lucy, if God exists, he's been trying to communicate himself from the very beginning. And I think that's one thing. Then I'd say the second thing is that if you keep looking for him, and this is in uh, Jeremiah uh, 29, 3, where it says, if you seek me, sorry, 29, 13, if you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. What Jeremiah is hitting on there is that if we have just a thought, if we have a mind that's seeking him, but if we aren't searching for God with our heart, that it may be that there is an issue that we don't intend to give control. If we find that there's a God, we may not intend to give him any control over it, uh, over our lives. And for that reason, then um, you may have you know, some time that you want to spend with God and maybe some, some time that you want to spend with some other people who are, are wondering, um, you know, how can they help themselves? How can they help you? How can they help those around you to understand who God is and, and what he wants you to, uh, to do and understand? And to me, I think this is one of the key things is that we do our Christian life. We do Christian experience in community because there will be many who have doubts. You will have, there, there are many who, who of people who will not, you know, have the same level of faith that you may have. And I think that's one of the keys is to try to, to uh, surround ourselves with other men and women who have strong faith, who can help us to understand. Why then does theological study sometimes cause disillusionment in a Christian scholar? A fantastic follow-up question. Uh, I think the answer to that question, Lucy, is that sometimes one of the strategies of the enemy is to get us focused more on our relationship with God with our minds as opposed to our hearts, okay? And, and David asked this early on. What about somebody who is a Christian who finds themselves uh, not wanting to? That was part two. If you have been blessed, please be sure to subscribe and follow because that will help us reach many other people around the world. Please remember that Cabin Devils is every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, 9 p.m. East African time here on Podbean. Have a good day and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.